Good morning. I am your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the June 27, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. It's a good time to read up about the Better Care Reconciliation Act. Actually, I've dubbed it the Bitter Care Revealed Act, just saying. And it's a good idea to familiarize your senator with your feelings about this legislation. Today, along with a, a neighbor, April Price at Community Environmental Council will talk about the recent launching of a University Hills solar residential project. It's called Solarize Irvine. Following that will be the program's annual ritual of welcoming the New Swan Theater Shakespeare Summer Festival here at UC Irvine starting July 6th going through September 1st. Director Bev Lopes will talk about her production Taming of the Shrew and discuss how William Shakespeare is understood or not in 2017. Before breaking, it's my pleasure to honor the decade of exquisite leadership from UCI's founding dean of the law school, Erwin Chemerinsky, who leaves at the end of this week to become the next dean at the Berkeley Law School. Erwin Chemerinsky presented an uncommon blend of humility, rigor, and accessibility. Everything and anything that those opposing his initial appointment to start this law school, he exerted through his inestimable influence over a multitude of venues beyond the law school's own abundant offerings that have been the measure of the man. Nonprofit organizations, K through 12 schools, places of worship, local political party chapters, and all national and local media platforms. Erwin Chemerinsky even graciously made himself available to any public affairs show at KUCI that requested an interview. Ask a leader among them. Sure, we're going to miss his wife and colleague, Catherine Fisk and him, We'll miss them very much. We must, though, take stock of the health of this stellar institution that he built. Sung Richardson will succeed him as interim dean, and we wish her all the best. Ms. Richardson, we have your back. Erwin Chemerinsky, Catherine Fisk, you have our gratitude. Be right back. Hey, everybody. Thank you for staying tuned. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My first guests are April Price and Rebecca Tuhouse dubrow to talk about where the Community Choice Energy Movement is bringing a group solar buy-in at our neighboring University Hills. Holmes. Rebecca is a writer in residence at UCI with articles galore on topics that are near and dear to this popsicle stand. Jane Jacobs' Radical Vision of Humanity and Speed Kills. Has technology destroyed leisure? Her writing has appeared in Slate, The Nation, The New York Times Book Review, 
of the LA Review of Books and Descent, where she is a contributing editor. She previously contributed to the Boston Globe's Ideas section, a columnist for the Urban Affairs website Next City, and a journalism and media fellow at the UCLA Institute of the Environment and Sustainability. Her project on the front burner is a cultural history of the Walkman to be published by Bloomsbury this year. Maybe it's already out. She'll tell us. She completed her BA degree at Yale. April Price is a renewable energy and efficiency specialist at Community Environmental Council working with the Solarize programs. In this role, April administers Solarize programs throughout the Central Coast. The programs helped over 520 home owners go solar through this work involvement in municipal energy efficiency programs and advocacy for community choice energy. April seeks to reduce the carbon emissions associated with energy from the electrical grid. April has a background in environmental education and volunteer management. She completed her bachelor's of science in biology at University of California, Santa Cruz, and a master's degree in environmental science and management with specialization in economics and politics of the environment from the Bren School at the University of California, Santa Barbara. April comes to us from Santa Barbara while Rebecca joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, ladies. Thank you, happy to be here. Thanks for having us on. Well, in the beginning was the Community Environmental Council. Let's have April lead us through the beginning, a brief history and a description of the charter of the Community Environmental Council. Certainly. So the Community Environmental Council started in Santa Barbara in 1970, right around the big oil spill here in Santa Barbara. And our work in the community has certainly evolved over the years. But in the last uh, five to seven years, it's really been focused on local solutions to climate change. So we work, um, as you mentioned, in promoting renewable energy, reducing single-use plastic use, and uh, promoting better alternatives to, for transportation and local food solutions as well. Well, local solutions just in time as we uh, watch as the, the national leadership on this whole carbon footprint simply collapses. So it's, it's actually really reassuring that there's leadership and infrastructure. There's a scaffold that's much, much closer to all of us to, to become involved. Did you want to add to that, Rebe- Rebecca? Or how did you two meet? Can, Why don't you tell yeah. us how you met? And then we'll get into the Solarize program. Okay, yeah, I'll just give a little background on how this whole initiative got started. A couple of neighbors and I, we live in University Hills, uh-huh. uh, the neighborhood around the, the university, and my neighbor Abby Reyes and Sinite Forthall, the three of us were interested in looking into how we might be able to get solar on our own homes. It seemed like we all had an interest in sustainability and it just seemed like a waste to, in this extremely sunny environment, not to have rooftop solar. So we started talking, and Sunite has a background uh, as a solar consultant, so she had the most expertise. And she, uh, as we had conversations with the community about how we might be able to get a group discount, um, Sunite, uh, I guess, through her research, came into contact with April's organization. Okay, so that's how Sunlight had some information about a group buy, and so everybody understood that there's an economy of scale and a sort of a discount that you can get with that. And that, and so maybe you had murmurings, April or 
uh, Abby and you with other people, they thought, gosh, it's just we're still not quite at the the price range that we think we could convert our home systems so that uh, this this was sort of like the that increment, that discount that brought, a, let's say, a, a mass, uh-huh. a, a con- critical mass of residents to, to be in on this group Yeah, buy. I think there are a couple important benefits. The, there's the discount, and there's also, when you start looking into solar, there are so many options out there that and it can so be much snake oil? overwhelming. Solar um, snake oil? And even if it's not snake oil, I, I don't know. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't want to say that for sure, but um, just... To the stress of trying to choose the best option, it, f- at least for, for me, it's, it just seemed very preferable to have someone who had some expertise help to vet it, vet, vet the different companies and try to get us the best deal and, and then just not have to make the decisions ourselves. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And then just to, to continue that story, I was just thrilled to get this phone call from <laughs> these motivated people in, in Irvine. Um, you know, so the history from my organization's standpoint is we've been running, again, we call them the Solarize programs. We've been running them since 2011. We've run 22 programs and, as you've mentioned, helped over 520 homeowners go solar. So we had this experience in working in communities to, to get people excited about going solar and to vet installers and then really negotiate those prices down and offer educational workshops in the communities. So it was quite a pleasure to, um, to get into contact with the University Hills homeowners where that excitement already existed and there were people really motivated to take the next step in moving forward to go solar. So, so our first step in, in getting the program yes. going was we invited the local solar installers that were already working in the community to apply to work with our program. We sent out a request for proposals and then got these applications from local solar installers really looking at their operations, their training, their um, equipment with a fine-tooth comb in order to vet local installers that the folks at University Hills and my organization would feel comfortable working with moving forward. And now there's there's so many factors. I guess it would be helpful for all listening in to know that the, there's different warranties in terms of duration, whether it covers just the, the, the hardware itself, uh, labor for installing. There's uh, there's changing regulations about where you place these, what percent, and how much disclosure. Let's, what are, well, maybe you could give us the kind of grid of considerations for taking on a, a, a particular joining with the contractor. Yeah. So again, this is kind of why this program exists because there are so many questions that homeowners have in determining whether or not it's a good choice for them to go solar. And so through this program, the vetted installer um, partner, in this case Urban Energy, um, is offering two package deals for customers. And so um, they're able to choose between, an, I mean, just to name the products, an LG product or a Sun Power product. And both of these uh, products through this program have excellent warranties. And it is part of this education process to, to really think through how long a product is going to last, what are the components of the product that, that will be installed on your home. Um, you know, people are used to seeing the panels on the homes, but, but learning, you know, there's, there's an inverter that's involved as well, and or perhaps micro-inverters, which are mini versions of inverters located individually on the panels. 
And let's, uh, since uh, I, I'm boning up and I'm sure everybody might be about on my level of, of literacy, the inverter is to get it from direct current to alternating current. Is that, that's the main purpose? You got it. Okay. Okay. And so that's, that's an essential part. And then we got a really explicit look at some of those with the solar decathlon. They, all those, those mobile home units had those. So I can re remember that. And then I was able to look at urban energy. So is everybody going in on the sun power uh, panel? Or do they well, have it? They're going to quite a few. Quite a few of the homeowners that have signed up uh, with the program have chosen the SunPower product. Um, I think you know it's a great product, but also uh, there was a really impressive discount that the company was able to offer the homeowners in Irvine, and we were able to negotiate. So it's, I would it's just such, jump a, in such a great deal. Add, Go ahead. Um, because I didn't know this, that SunPower is kind of the Porsche of solar panels. So. Uh, people are really excited about it, and and last I heard, everyone had so far chosen to go with that deal. Well, a Porsche, or you know what I like to do with analogies like this, a Porsche sounds kind of exclusive with a little a vain kind of aspect mm. to it. But maybe how about it's the wingtip versus the <laughs> the van's tennis shoe? <laughs> I'm not. Wing, a wingtip shoe is the sturdy, sturdy work shoe that oh, business okay. for business yes. attire. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you say, April? Well, you know, I mean, SunPower definitely has this name recognition in the market and has an excellent warranty. But um, the LG is also a great product available through this program. Okay. And, you know, most solar panels in general, you're, you're not really going to have too many problems with the product through the life of, of the panel. Um, in the solar industry, it's commonly said that they have no moving parts. And so it's, it's a pretty um, established technology that's going to provide renewable energy to the homeowner for, for quite some time. So the group aspect is working with urban energy, but there's a range of, or, or there's several models that residents are selecting from. Two. The, two, the two. Is that, that's how it breaks down then. But urban energy is installing either one of those. Yeah. Okay. Well, and folks... For those of you who've just joined us, my guests are April Price, Renewable and Efficiency Specialist at Community Environmental Council, and Rebecca Tuhaus Dubrow, uh, involved resident at University Hills, and we're talking about Solarize Irvine, installing in a, a group deal solar panels and University Hills nearby the campus. And the, the point of all of this is not only to raise our literacy with solar energy, but also that we have a deadline, and I don't know that now Urban Energy wanted you to make it official that there was a, a July 19 deadline, but officially, ladies, it's now lengthened to, is it July 30th? Oh, yeah, I was just, not aware of just to, <laughs> It's hot off the press. <laughs> just to the end of the month, uh, we, we have had a recent real uptick in the interest in the program, and so in order to um, meet that demand and make sure that everyone had a chance to talk with the installer, we did extend the deadline just until the end of July. Great. So the end of next month, yes. And I just wanted to make it clear that although this originated in University Hills, Solarize Irvine is, the, the discount is available to any homeowner in Irvine. In the city. So anybody listening within the municipality, yes. everybody around. Well, that's, folks, I don't think it could get better than that. You let this neighborhood set you up and then, so would it, Possibly, if you had even a larger economy of scale, April, could that bring the discount down even lower if you had many more houses around the city? 
Well, you know, it's it's something that we're exploring in other in other areas. Uh, we're currently running solarized programs in Ventura County and in Santa Barbara County on a larger scale. But I think what's unique about what's happening here in Irvine is it's a lot a lot more centralized, and I think there's benefits there because it's really neighbors talking to neighbors and uh, getting getting that excitement up. So. Um, there is some benefit in just keeping it within a given city or, or a few neighborhoods because uh-huh. actually more people end up moving forward with, with the projects because there is that local excitement and really that, that local education that can occur from one neighbor to another. And I, when I spoke with Urban Energy, they made it very clear that this is a very immediate activation with once you've negotiated, and we unfortunately, folks, I know you're wondering now, do we have any consumers? And they are, they're out of town, or they were, uh, they're just not available to tell us about how, how great it all is working so far. But the 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 turnaround time for applying, installing is can be maybe three weeks. Is that about right? Yeah, in order to sign a contract, it can be that short. And actually, getting the system on up on your home uh, will look more like six to, to eight weeks. Oh, okay. um, it's pretty standard. Um, but but certainly, to get those contracts signed um, can happen very quickly. And and that time frame is because of the approvals that are needed. Right. Well, they talked from, about yeah, yeah the, the HOA and then the city of Irvine. Right. Right. So the Irvine Community Housing Authority has there's a little bit of a a, a little review period. So, but that's but it's it's pretty pretty immediate in in other words yeah. from what we might imagine. So April, I was mentioning something that there's there's changes in legislation. Urban Energy mentioned that there is some kind of a liability issue that's realized. So some firefighter has a problem navigating dealing with the fire around a solar panel, and depending on the positioning of the roof, it was you know it wasn't safe. And so there's there's different positions for these panels that may change some of the way in which the you're retrieving the solar energy so are there things that you envision might still be changing as solar energy is getting tweaked well sure there there's always changes especially as you mentioned concerning safety and concerning the immediate shutoff that needs to be available to to firefighters but these you know at this point in time uh, this again this technology has been around for a while and yes. it's it's safety has been definitely proven in the industry. I would say that things that are changing yes. in the solar industry are, um, or maybe changing the how solar is being installed are coming definitely from, from the utilities. Um, so, you know, we're used to being billed for our electricity, or, or most people, especially in Edison Territory, are used to being billed for our electricity on a tiered payment schedule. So as you use more electricity each month, you pay more per kilowatt hour. Right. But as the utilities change how they bill their customers and we're moving into time of use pricing, that's certainly going to um, change the change the equation a bit in terms of how much you're paying for electricity each month and make it really beneficial for folks to make that switch over to, to solar energy. And that timing is where the load is highest between 2 and 6 p.m., and that may be reconsidered as far as pricing goes? Exactly, yeah. The, the final determinations on, on the utilities' uh, time-of-use pricing structure um, have not 
been made yet, but but we are um, we are used to this spike in demand on our electrical grid right. occurring in the afternoon when people are coming home from work and and turning on their appliances in their home, and um, so that 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 increased demand really does stress the grid and um, having more people relying on their own electricity use at that time is is really beneficial. So this begs the question then when we were dealing with some of the energy shortages in previous years we were all learning how to do laundry at night like after 10 p.m. if we were really good little soldiers so what kind of habits might the solar energy be, with respect to how the the you know available energy is uh, and, and the, the the storage factor or the lack thereof storage how do, would that m maybe change our energy consumption in uh, at the diurnal sort of schedule well this is a huge a huge issue and a huge question for yeah. balancing the demand on california's grid and Hopefully, you know, the correct pricing incentives can be established from our utilities and other electricity providers. But I think in the long term, as more solar electricity comes online, we're actually going to see incentives that encourage electricity users to move their most intensive electricity consumption uh, towards the middle of the day right, when more right. electricity is being produced by by our solar um, solar rays, whether they are on our homes or, or out in the desert and, and larger utility-scale projects. So let's talk about some of the, the financial aspects of it. Is what kind of housing structure, because I guess condos are not a part of this, not because of the roof situation, but because of the ownership of condos is, it's but your, my old real estate title insurance background, but it's you own only in the air inside the wall. So it's, we have homes of all stock in the neighborhood. So does it matter otherwise? Everybody has to have their own roof though, because mm. of some of the way, some of the uh, units are set up. So, so otherwise everybody's eligible yeah the townhomes are eligible and the freestanding single-family homes are eligible the condos unfortunately are not at this time but uh, I did understand from Andrew at, at ICHA that at our HOA that if the condo board were to decide to go forward then that could be a possibility okay. at some time in the future they but it as an, be HOA an individual could... condo owner on oh. his or her own. As a group, yeah. they, they would do that. Okay, okay, fine. And April, we're going to add to that? Yeah, I just think that it's great that in Irvine, you know, lots of HOAs, um, groups of, of homeowners are able to, to move forward within the HOA as as people within the community become more comfortable with the technology. You know, as you see your neighbor going solar, then um, you're you're more interested in going solar. And there is a a wider neighborhood acceptance of, of that technology and, and seeing the benefits and, and how quickly, um, you know, you mentioned the payback period, how quickly that investment does pay off. So um, in terms of, of another benefit of, of working with this program or otherwise in terms of adding solar to your home, you really are looking to add value to your home. And I know the real estate market in Irvine is already <laughs> very expensive, but you are looking to increase the value of your home as shown it's in never studies. Enough. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there you go. Um, because, I mean, basically you're, you're creating a home that um, is supplying its own electricity. And so for most home buyers, that has 
uh, been shown in the data to be a boon, to be a real benefit. So have solar panels become a status symbol yet? <laughs> um, I don't know. It probably depends on, on well, who you ask. Let's start that today. <laughs> there's there's going to be peer pressure from Radio KUCI that solar panels are a status symbol. Get on board, everybody. I'm That's always <laughs> yeah, yeah. when I see them. So um, now the ownership, what kind of financing array do people have to consider here in Irvine, here at University Hills? Well, University Hills, this is Rebecca. the neighborhood is unusual, if not unique, it, in terms of the way that the the land is owned right. by the university so it's it doesn't apply to other neighborhoods um but we were strongly discouraged from leasing because of the way that it could complicate the the sale okay. of the home and i don't think anyone is doing that as far as i know april you can tell me if you know of anyone but so i think most if not all of the residents going forward with this are um, paying up front. Okay. Yeah, so so there is that option that um, Rebecca brought up of, of, you know, within the solar industry, there is that option of leasing or power purchase agreements that um, this is the, you know, widely discussed option of going solar for free, um, and basically you're just buying the power from the panels that are installed in your roof. Now, now that's not really what um, is happening through this program. Again, we have negotiated... Uh, great pricing for the purchase of these panels and the entire install and system. Um, but with that said, there are options that are available for financing the purchase of that system. Um, there's solar loans that, um, that Urban Energy can connect homeowners with, and many folks choose to finance their system uh, just through home equity loans and private financing. So we've definitely seen a drop in um, in the rates associated with private lending, and um, but still, a lot of a lot of folks have find have found that the best option is with the home equity line of credit. Well, according to Urban Energy, too, the the economics are changing with the leasing. It's now there's people that have a little more purchasing power. There are more more people are employed and that kind of thing. That so. University Hills is a very, very secure kind of a labor market situation, so the, the, those kinds of market fluctuations wouldn't show up here. But for other residences around the, the city, that, um, that, that, the trend of leasing seems to be going away. But tell us what, what the warranties are that people get for what they are installing. Yeah, so um, essentially you're getting a 25-year warranty with, again, as Rebecca mentioned, most, if not all, of the homeowners have chosen to uh, move forward with the Sun Power product. So it's it's a 25-year power production and product warranty for 25 years, which which means you're guaranteed that your your panels are going to be producing a certain amount of electricity for that for the duration. Um, and then again, if there's any issues with the products, then they'll be replaced. So it's it's sort of a cradle to cradle or cradle to grave um, warranty. And um, with, with the other choice, um, there's, uh, again, a power production warranty for 25 years, and the product warranty is 12 years. But again, as I mentioned, with, with solar panels, you're really not looking to, um, you're not expecting to see any, any problems with the uh, production from the panels, especially past those first couple of years when any issues might arise. I just want to say I can't resist. Uh, I also learned that all the panels that have been installed on the university campuses 
parking structures that the firm is bankrupt so that and they're that university hills residents are getting a better product than what's on campus oh well well i didn't hear about that yeah, okay that's just well this is how cutting yeah. it we try to be uh -huh. very current so well i how many of the how many residents have signed up already what's what's the tally here rebecca well, yesterday I asked Ding. Urban Energy for the latest figures, and 34 contracts have been signed, and 15 installations have been initiated so far. Initiated. So some of them are already watching their meters go backward kind of thing. Well, starting. they've been installation initiated. Okay. I'm not sure if that means okay. they're, any, if any have been completed yet. I don't know if... If you know that. Yeah, so four, four homeowners are already seeing their meters mm. begin to run backwards, so probably spending more time than they ever will in their life looking at their electricity meters. Absolutely. Um. That's the most fun, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's something that, you know, you can track on your phone, and a lot of people get really excited about it for the first couple of months because it's pretty neat. Yeah. Well, we as I said, there is the July 30 deadline for folks for University Hills, as well as all of Irvine, all of Irvine, and where do people need to get a hold of you all for more information and to get that contract started? Well, I'd recommend that people visit our website. It's uh, solarizeirvine.org, and they can sign up for the program there and um, call me directly with with more questions and also get in contact with our installer partner urban energy okay i will include that in my podcast summary so folks uh, you can always go to askaleader.com for this show today the june 27 show and all of those details including april's ex it's extension 101 that's that's you it goes to that's me okay. that's me so we'll be doing that well i want to thank both of you did you have any additional sorts of takeaways you want listeners to have before we say thank you so much for being on the show. I, I would just say quickly that doing the math on these numbers, on these using these prices, uh, customers are going to see a pretty quick payback period, and uh, prices have certainly dropped in recent years. So if you thought that solar was out of reach for you, you might just want to give me a call, and I can talk to you through those options without selling you anything and uh, see if it will work for you. And I would just add that I highly recommend April as a person to walk you through this process. And so you're you're a nonprofit, right? That's right. So and the Urban Energy, they are a business here, and they they have a lot of actual information for the prospective customers. So I'll I may even put throw in their their name in the summary there, so people can see what their models are that they're working with. But you do you also have the models when people check with you, April? Um, I have all of the information in terms of the technologies yes. and, you know, thinking through all of the the policies and that sort of thing. So to actually move forward and get a quote and, and get the layout designed, uh, the customers would talk to Urban Energy. Well, ladies, thank you so much. It's been a real joy having April Price, Renewable and Efficiency Specialist at Community Environmental Council, and Rebecca Tuhouse de Brau, uh, and very involved in University Hills Solarize Irvine. Thanks both of you for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Claudia. We'll be right back after a short station break, and we're going to hear from Beth Lopes with the taming of the shrew, among other things. Be right back. Don't go away. <laughs> 
Thank you for staying with us. That was Blue Skies from Louis Prima. He was quite the band leader. So welcome back to the show. My next guest is New Swan director Beth Lopes. Ms. Lopes is a freelance theater director and teacher based in L.A. She's drawn to pieces, as she says, and I quote her, with heightened text, a sense of the fantastical, and a focus on community perfect for New Swan. Her directing credits at the New Swan include Much Ado About Nothing and A Midsummer Night's Dream. Boy, do I remember, especially Midnight Summer Night's Dream. That was magic. She's also directed Shakespeare at San Antonio Shakespeare in the Park, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, Loose Cannon Collective, New York Neoclassical. You may have seen her other plays at Center Theater Group, South Coast Rep, The Courage Theater, Stockton Civic, and L.A. Newcourt Theater, or Thirsty Turtle Productions. She completed her Bachelor's of Fine Arts at New York University in Theater, and a minor in classics and a master's of fine arts in the theater directing from UCI. She joins me in studio. Welcome Beth Lopes to Ask a Leader. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I'm glad because this is it is a ritual. I know Eli's going to be on another show uh, that will be Monday before Fourth of July. He'll be talking about his part of it. But excellent. So, but it's all about what you're doing. Starting July seventh is going to be the Taming of the Shrew first preview, and then the first. Okay, and then tell us about the setting for the Taming of the Shrew and what you're trying to strike with that, Beth. Yeah, we're setting it in the mid-1980s. And one of the things that really drew me about that period was uh, the the feeling of excess. You can see it in the clothing, which I think that uh, we all remember very vividly, of big hair, big shoulder pads. Um, but also, you know, there was the birth of the yuppie and greed and, and this materialistic excess that I think is actually an incredible setting for Taming of the Shrew. That is counterbalanced, if uh, I might say, with uh, Kate and Petruchio, who are children of the late 70s punk revolution. So I, I joke that it's a bit of Sid and Nancy in a Miami Vice world, that, oh, that they, don't, they don't fit in the world that they've been born into. And that is very apparent uh, in the story. And I think it's very helpful for what at least I'm trying to do with their relationship, which is hopefully craft a love story. So for for all our benefit, though, you get to choose the setting. I, I'm always curious about wh- how much freedom directors have or do you confer with? Well, it com- it completely depends on the theater and the environment. But with, with Eli, Eli is very open to what I'm interested in conceptually. We talk about the season in great detail before it's announced. And then once it's announced, we talk about um, both shows and bounce ideas off of each other. And he, he's an incredibly supportive artistic director in that sense. So I had brought this idea to him and and he was absolutely up for it and and really excited about what that might bring to the play. Okay. Wow. 1980s. <laughs> we well, usually try to contrast the plays as well and he's setting uh Tempest in the the golden age of pirates as he says. So we try to have something that's a bit more contemporary and something that's a bit older. Right. to to contrast, which is usually nice. And the in all of the play, though, all the lines remain William Shakespeare's lines. Well, we've taken you've a taken little a, bit of liberty. You have. A little bit, yes. Okay, we're not going to spoil anything. But, Great. So, but <laughs> we'll, so we'll know when you're doing it. But um, 
So uh, like, sometimes yes, and sometimes no. There there are certain things that that word choices that we might have switched that that seem yeah. seem like Shakespeare just because the it's an archaic term. Or I, I joke with our our dramaturg Julia Lupton that it seems like there's a lot of pop culture references in this play that are obviously not no longer They're pop quaint. culture. Yes, exactly. So well, then I, you know I'm going to ask you for one example. For one example. Or, Okay, I, I have I have a really silly one. Okay, um, at the at the be- towards the beginning of the show, someone says I would give him the best horse in Padua, and so we changed it to Porsche in Padua. Oh, perfect! Because it really seemed to fit the setting. So that that's a very silly one. Um, but then there's there's some that I that I won't spoil as much th- throughout that are actually very subtle shifts, but I think will make a big impact story wise. And you couldn't have sent Ferrari; would have just thrown the whole rhythm off. Exactly. We want something that that matches the the it's rhythm of the line. Yeah. Okay. Well, the central character, Kate, is interpreted many ways by audiences. What was William Shakespeare trying to convey? And then let us know what you're going to try to do with this play. Ooh, I could not presume to know what William Shakespeare was really? trying to not, convey. No notes. You know, I I think that it's it's just really hard to to comprehend you know I think about this with Merchant of Venice too of I think that he's he's writing these characters that are so sympathetic but that are in a time where where the the worldview and the community wouldn't be as sympathetic so I think that that I it it poses a very interesting question about what his intentions were as far as Kate in our production um, I think that she's a misfit and like like Petruchio um, the thing that I think is a bit different about our production is that something I really have taken from the script is that I think that physical violence is actually Kate's language. And so often I think that you hear about the violence in this play and this violence done towards her. And there is violence done towards her, you know, and acted on her. But it's um, physical violence in particular, I actually think is her language. Um, That's how she acts out. Um, So I and I think that Petruchio acts out by being erratic uh, and that both of them are using these things as defense mechanisms because they feel like they don't fit in. They don't belong anywhere. Are they defense mechanisms between the characters and attention that the playwright builds in for the the production and the audience? Absolutely. I mean, I think that there is a lot of tension with this play. Like you said, July 7th is our first preview, and I am really looking forward to it because I think that our audiences will give us a lot of information about how they're receiving the story that we're trying to tell. And there is a lot of tension and there's a lot of very controversial stuff about this play. Right. And I think that we are facing it head on. But I'm also hoping hoping that there's a, a real loving relationship at the end of it that the audience can get behind. So it'll be interesting to see if that's playing out. And you know from your previous experience that with the intimacy of the small scale of the New Swan Theater, that that tension is going to be immediately broadcast to every seat holder, no matter how no matter what how exclusive the seat. They're all exclusive. Absolutely. There is there's nowhere to run. You will you will be very Under their deeply spell. embedded in this in this show. So tell us about some of the cast are some mainly those that are veterans to the New Swan Theater Festival. 
We have a really healthy mix this year, actually. We have a bunch of new people, which is always really exciting. We ac- we actually got into the Swan for the first time a couple days ago, and it was it's always a magical yes moment for the new people. Um, but we also have uh, several several veterans. We have our, our Petruchio is Ryan Imhoff, who played Benedict two years ago in Much Ado About Nothing. And then our Kate is Grace Morrison, who played Horatio and Phoebe last year and Hero and One of the Witches the year before. Uh, we also have Greg Unger, who's playing Baptista. He's also playing Prospero, and he's played many parts over the last few years, um, and several other veterans. So it's always nice to have a, a nice, healthy mix among the cast. But it's a very talented group, great ensemble. For those of you who just joined us, my guest is Beth Lopes. She's director of The Taming of the Shrew, staged at this summer's New Swan Theater at UCI. And you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Streaming all over on the web at KUCI.org. We're on Twitter at KUCIFM. Instagram, same old handle. Tumblr, blog.KUCI.org. And Facebook, blah, 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 blah. We're all over the place. (laughs) But really... We're inside the New Swan Theater. That structure went up faster than ever. I think Keith Bangs has, he's got his crowd sort of, they know how to do this with blindfolds on by now. Because this is the sixth annual, correct? Yes. Gosh, I can't believe it. Yes. And and Keith built the theater, so he knows yes. it like the back of his hand. Yes, I remember when he led me to the storage area where it was first constructed and, and, and was just, it was a marvel six year, short years ago to see that. Well... There's been some Shakespeare action sort of in our to see if any of us were not sure whether there were cultural wars in full fling in in our nation. Let's talk about the how subversive do you consider Shakespeare can be? And and that's my first question. Then we'll go to the culture wars. How subversive is Shakespeare? Is there a difference between the productions that can be done in the in the academy, like here on a college campus, versus in civic organizations? Ooh, uh, there's a lot in that question. I think that Shakespeare is is definitely subversive. There's a great play called Equivocation by Bill Kane, which I think that does an amazing job of t- telling the story of him writing Macbeth. And and the idea that Shakespeare was writing these plays for the common people and also for royalty. So how do you, in that play, equivocate? How do you tell the truth while keeping your head on your shoulders? <laughs> and I think that he does an excellent job of that. Of There's so much in his plays of challenging authority while kind of sucking up to authority. And I think he, ba- he walks that line really, really well. As far as the difference between, you know, the ac- venues, yeah. academic productions or I mean, you definitely have to have to know your audience for sure, um, because I think that certain choices will play, you know, some places and not other places, which actually I, I don't know if you're going to get to the Julius Caesar and in, in Shakespeare in the Park. Just just that I think that actually what's really interesting about the choice of having having Julius Caesar in Shakespeare in the Park, it's mostly a very liberal urban audience that it's it's a very interesting choice to have this Trump-like figure because actually the message of the play is that it doesn't work. The assassination doesn't work. It proves disastrous for the conspirators. So to, to show that play in this mostly liberal audience is a really interesting message, which Oscar Eustace said it himself, that you cannot fight undermining democracy by undermining democracy. You have to fight it with democratic means, which I think is actually a really great message for specifically that audience. So I think it's too bad that it's getting protested because I think that a lot of the protesters are missing the point. 
Nuance has taken a long holiday. <laughs> that's that's a great way of putting it's, it. It's Sleeping Beauty, uh, surrounded by fire, and we've got to we've got to penetrate that ring of fire. Well, my my to, a friend of mine said, you know, once she she was referring to the to the protesters, she said, "Do they not read Beyond Three <laughs> One? There's a whole rest of the play where this this action proves disastrous, right, for right. these conspirators." And there, of course, were other political figures that have been cast as the figure in Julius Caesar. Obama that seemed in to be not a big deal, but now, yep. now it's sort of looking for trigger hair. Well, and if you don't attacks. think that Julius Caesar is political, you haven't read or seen the play. Yeah, it's very political. <sighs> yeah. So, doesn't you said it matters? You know what the audience is, but does an academic setting that is an academic production? get to consider as much subversive devices as a civic or a private You know, sometimes production. more, actually. Okay. Because, you know, my thesis at UCI was, was The Crucible. And I feel like we actually made some really bold choices with it, partly because we were in a university environment and we were surrounded by people who were encouraging risk and trying new ideas. And, and sometimes that's you don't get that luxury when you're in a professional organization because because there are so many bottom lines of, you know, right. you have to think about ticket sales and you have to think about donors and their response to the play. And that sometimes you don't have those responsibilities in an academic environment. New Swan is a hybrid between the two, really. Right, right. So we're kind of taking everything into consideration. But I have to say, over the past five years, our audiences have really gone with us. I mean, we I feel like we, we've pushed the envelope on things and, and told interesting stories. And Kate and Petruchio have a very unconventional relationship that I'm hoping people will get on board with. Um, but thus far, our audiences have been incredibly supportive and very encouraging of risk taking. Is it palpable to you in your capacity as a director that there is a, a sort of a loyal contingent and it's it helps actually fill those seats from season to season? Definitely. We have some very, very loyal patrons that will even come to the first read through and, and drop drop off snacks at the rehearsal room. I mean, people who are just so devoted to the festival and making sure that we have everything we need. And then absolutely bringing people to the show and, and getting butts in the seats. And that is so helpful, not only for the bottom lines of getting the, those those seats filled, but also just for the, the feeling of the festival. Eli always talks about the new Swan family, and it really does feel like that. We have a very strong community of people who are willing to support the plays by watching them, by participating, however they need to. So that begs the segue here to talking about those special events that the community is a part of. That It's just an amazing roster of events scheduled that uh, showcase well, let's talk mainly about the ones that showcase the taming of the shrew. There's the informative talks by scholars and artists. Julia Lupton will have on July 29 a talk, Abby Heald and Eli Simon on August 13th, and Ian Monroe on August 26th. Now, I don't know, are you going to be in, since uh, your your work isn't finished when you start the production, you're still directing them and you're watching some of those plays. I know you're based in L.A., but you're going to be coming down. Are you going to be at any of these community events? 
I will be at every, I believe I can say this, I think I'll be at every single community conversation for okay. Taming of the Shrew, which are after the, the show. Week. And that'll be after each Friday performance. Correct. Greg Unger is holding court with that, and he's he's giving his Gmail account up. I'll put that in the, the summary <laughs> for the, at askaleader.com, folks, for the show. And so you can get a hold of him about that. So the community conversations are how structured. So after the show is completed... We tell people that we're going to have this conversation and they're welcome to stay or not stay, whatever they want. And it usually lasts around 20, 25 minutes. And audience members can ask questions of, of me, of the actors. And uh, it's usually a really interesting, informative conversation about how people responded, what they're, they're curious about the production. You have things that are usually general that people are very interested about how are actors learning lines and what, you know, what is an actor's choice versus a director's choice, kind of general rehearsal production questions. And then you get one specific to the play. And I thought that with this play in particular, it was very important for me to be there yes. at every single conversation because it is so controversial. And as I told the actors, I won't let you guys take that heat. I'll be there to talk to people. And then there is the Shakespeare weekend. That's August 13th. It's focusing on Taming of the Shrew, and an, that's an afternoon of study that begins at 2 with the UCI faculty, cast members, distinguished guests, we just don't know who that is, and followed by a performance at the New Swan Theater, culminating in the performance of the, of the, the play. That This will be the Taming of the Shrew. So there's a couple of ways I want to carry this this contemporary thing is that I'm not sure if the excesses of the 1980s are going to be quaint by comparison of our contemporary excesses. We, we know there's no real estate that's affordable in Washington, D.C. with the Trump cabinet renting and buying up homes all over there. So this, that's like the, one of the first markers that this is a new era mm -hmm. of a, this is a gilded era. So I think older people will recognize what it meant to transition to the 1980s, but maybe a younger audience is going to say, but we're seeing more extreme wealth on display at this point. So th that's the one thought. And the other thought was, I want to see a production set in Vladimir Putin's Russia with the, with the kind of palace intrigue. It just got to be full of Shakespeare. I'm going to say more tragedy than comedy. Yeah, I mean, I think that when you're setting these plays conceptually, I think something I think about a lot is that, as Eli has said before, putting these plays in different settings, different time periods, illuminates the stories in, in different ways. And that is what we're trying to do with the 1980s. There is something for me about setting them too close to the reality of the moment. That is sometimes challenging. And that that's actually my one critique. I haven't gotten to see, obviously, the Julius Caesar. The public theater in, the in New yes. York. But um, I, I wonder that it might it might be too close and that things like this happen because people go, oh, Trump, Trump being assassinated. And they respond so so viscerally and immediately. And as opposed to when you have a little bit of distance. That's an interesting point. You're able to make those connections for yourself rather than feeling like you're being beaten over the head with it. So that's something that I think about a lot is walking that line of bringing something into the familiar. But if it's too on the nose with this is what's happening right now, I think sometimes you can alienate people and you'll get people leaving an intermission, which obviously is a visceral response. And we want people to respond viscerally to our shows, but we also want them to watch through the end. Right. But the, and the public theater people are weighing in with their their 
they it's a it's free to attend that mm-hmm. play, correct? But and they are having no problems filling any of their oh, blanket no. spaces or no, seats. not at all. Not so at it, all. It's always bad publicity is uh, is good publicity. Well, and I think at this point, people really want to see the spectacle. I think. At yeah. the, I'm sure there are a bunch of audience members that are hoping someone is there protesting. All right, that's true. Because yeah. someone someone wrote on Facebook the other day of, of, of describing the event of the fake police from the play with the real police oh my coming goodness. in and fake protesters and real protesters and the audience not knowing what is real and what is fake. And that's what your point is, though. It, it's too immediate. So and, and, that ambiguity and that, is not necessarily a good thing. Exactly. And, and that there's there's a special kind of theater experience you get from that. Absolutely. Or but, good, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I also think that sometimes a little bit of distance allows people to think about things and absorb things in a way that they, they would actually reject if it was too close. Wow. So are you going to get a chance to get to New York City before that plays over with? <laughs> Unfortunately, so, no. Because I wish your obligation's there's, here. There's actually a UCI grad in the show. Who's that? Maribel Martinez. Oh. She's, is she the one on the bus? She's in the... On the uh, bus panel? Uh, she's in the ensemble of the show. I don't, I don't know... Uh, I obviously haven't been able to see it. But. And she was in Much Ado? She was and, in Much Ado, and she was Ophelia in and, Hamlet last year. And okay. Celia in As You Like It. So, Oh, yes, yes, yes. She's on the bus as yeah. her character from Boeing okay. Boeing. Yeah, 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 exactly. All right, well, I know we could go on and on because Shakespeare is everything and all things. Oh, the, just the last, the concluding comment was, though, that apparently it's not just the public theater now that's getting this yes. wall of protest. There are... Shakespeare plays that are all now, whether or not they're set in anything the least bit contemporary, they're all being challenged by the those in the culture wars that want to uh, roll us back I know, into who, the dark ages. I know who knew that this, this playwright who's been writing... Well, who, who knew any of the last 16, 18 he'd months? He'd be so controversial hundreds of years later. Okay, well... That's why I, we still do his plays, I guess. Exactly. So the new swanshakespeare.com is where you get all of your information. You can find out where different seats are, and you can get your tickets either at the Claire Trevor School of the Arts box office. They're going to be out in the afternoons outside of the New Swan structure, sometimes to sell tickets. There's also the website. I will post at the arts.uci.edu. Artsticks at uci.edu is another way to communicate with my favorite Mr. Walker. Is he still there? Oh, love David I, Walker. I always do shout out this time of year for him. And the number to call, and I don't know, I think it's regular business hours, 949-824-2787. So, Beth, it's been a real joy. I was trying to get you on. You've been, you know, in other years, and I finally got to have you this year. To I'm so glad I could ritual. finally make it. I'm yes. so glad. And thank you. Beth Lopes is the director of this year's New Swan Theater production of Taming of the Shrew. Good luck in filling up all of those seats, and thanks for keeping such a, a vigorous cultural ritual so alive. Thank you. Well, I want to just conclude with one. And this is, we'll close out with Always True to You and Kiss Me, Kate. So here's a local way to exercise your patriotism with voter registration. This would allow you to plug into voter registration efforts in your community. Please contact Julie Tapp. Her email is julie, J-U-L-I-E-T-A-P-P-1 at gmail.com. Soon is better than later to let them know you're coming so they can save you a seat. They're asking you to bring a pen and clipboard and five bucks. It's next week. 
Monday, July 3rd from 4 to 5 p.m. at the University Synagogue on 3400 Michelson Drive. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, we'll hear from some patriotic themes. Congressman Lou Correa from the 44th District will share with us his experiences meeting in Tijuana with veterans who've been deported. Imagine that. We'll also hear from the Orange County Brady Campaign for the Prevention of Gun Violence with the power couple Charles and Mary Lee Black about the latest legislation. There's a lot. There's the reciprocity legislation and whether or not silencers are going to be available in the broader marketplace. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. But I'm always true to you, darling, in my fashion. Yes, I'm always true to you, darling, in my way. There's an oil man known as Tex, who is keen to give me checks. But his checks, I fear, mean that sex is here to stay.